I heard a preacher that was widely published and widely known was asked one time, do you believe the devil is real? And he said, yes, I do for two reasons. First of all, the Bible says he's real. And second, I've done business with him. And I don't know if it's just my imagination, like when you re- learn a new word or something, you seem like you see it everywhere and you hadn't noticed it before, or someone you know gets a, a car a certain kind and everywhere you see a, that car, that kind of car on the road. But it seems to me like every time I talk about the enemy, he comes after me even worse in some way. Maybe that's just my cognizance of it because I'm talking about it. Last a few weeks, we've been studying the end times, the death our death and the separation of the body and the spirit and burial and resurrection and the end of time, the judgment day and heaven and hell and the holding place of the dead and the intermediate state of the dead. And so I want to get into a series now on the, the invisible things, the spirit world, demons and angels, the devil himself, the Holy Spirit possibly and some things that are not seen and yet we know they are real and see what the Bible says about these things. We have a tendency sometimes to go to the extremes either denying that the spirit world is real and exists and is active or get so involved in it we think that demons possess people today and, and exorcists have a job to do and things like that. And there's so many misconceptions out there. So I want to talk about tonight, talk about the, our adversary, the devil. First uh, Peter 5 and verse 8 calls him our adversary. But the whole idea here is the, is the idea of the unseen world. The unseen world is seen by faith and the unseen world is the real world. It's eternal. And so Paul says in the idea of 2 Corinthians 4 and chapter 5, the idea of not losing heart and of being able to hang in there and keep on keeping on is this idea of, of being renewed daily from the inside out. And part of that is done by looking at that which is not seen. For the things that are unseen, he says, are eternal. The things which are seen are temporary. And so we have an eye of faith and able to be able to see these things. Hebrews 11 says it this way. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain or the evidence of things unseen, things that we do not see. A thought occurred to me recently, and I don't know why it hadn't occurred to me before, and I don't even know if it's a good thought. It's weird. And that is when I think about the spiritual world, I always think about spirits of any kind being up somewhere out there, like up in the air. And they may be, but... The veil, as we call it, between the seen world and the unseen world, I wonder if it's like if spirits are just right there, like beside me, or instead of way up there in the air somewhere. And and we can't even talk in those terms because spirits are not like us. They're not uh, flesh and, and blood. And so we don't even have a concept of what space they occupy. God created through Christ things that are invisible and things that are unseen, principalities and powers, angels... And things, and just because we can't see them does not mean that they're not real. And so in Colossians chapter 1, Paul says to the church of Colossae that Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created, in, uh, in the, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. And John says that without him was not anything made that hath been made. And so involved in the creation is the created order, the universe, the physical things we behold and are part of. And yet the unseen world is a real world as well. So and and looking at this, there's so much to be said. I don't even know. I need to rethink the whole process of how much material to use in this. Because just looking at this list of questions that we have in our minds, maybe we don't consciously voice them. But uh, if you look at this, where did angels come from? Have angels always existed? How many angels are there? What form do the angels take? 
What do they look like? How did angels appear to people? Are all angels the same? Who was the angel of the Lord? How did the angels deliver messages from God? Do angels sing? Do angels have feelings and emotions? And you look at a list like this, and on the first impression would be, yes, no, I don't know, probably. How in the world would you think that? And quickly just dismiss it all like this is not even important. This is trivia, or is it trivia? Uh, the, the list continues. Can angels marry women on the earth? Some people have had ideas like that because of what the Bible says that sounds like it might mean that, but does it mean that? Are there female angels? Do angels have halos on their heads? Do angels have wings? Can they fly? These sounds like grade school questions, and yet they're valid questions because we wonder about these very things. What do they do? What are the activities of angels? Are angels active in the Christian age? How do angels minister to people? Do we all have a guardian angel? And you can look on YouTube, and one lady says she sees angels now. And then the person interviewing her about her book about angels, she says, I see all you people have angels. I see your angels right now. And we have fantastic claims. And so just because somebody may be mistaken in what they're claiming doesn't mean that the whole issue is, is out the window, that angels don't even exist just because we don't see them. Uh, do angels carry us to God when we die? How will angels be involved in the second coming of Christ and the judgment? Are angels dead saints? Are we, or do we become angels in heaven? Can angels sin? And what are fallen angels? And when did they fall? And can bad angels repent? Was Satan an angel? How did, or did God create Satan? And what are the activities of Satan and his angels? And so now we're getting into the dark side of this. I like to think about beautiful angels of light and good angels and yet we know that there are something like bad angels or evil angels or wicked angels or the devil and his angels. First Peter 6, uh, that's not the right reference, but anyway, the, the, the text is right. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be, so, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accompanied by your brethren, or accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And so Peter calls Satan our adversary, that he's active. Jesus gave credit to the idea that Satan was alive and well and working, and working against God's people. And we'll see that as we develop this. Both Plato and Socrates referred to this uh, myst mythical or um, imaginary chariot driver as an illustration of the, the struggle between good and evil. And Phaedrus then in this mythology was driving this chariot and he had two horses, a, a lighter horse and a dark horse. The lighter horse was uh, reason and it pulled toward the good things, the valuable things in life. And the dark horse was passion and it pulled to the earthly, sensual, demonic things. And that's really a pretty good illustration. We have illustrations in, in uh, literature of an angel sitting on your shoulder, the devil in the red suit on one side with a pitchfork, and the other one pictured as an angel with a halo on the other side, on the other shoulder, and one of them's telling you to do bad things, and the other one's telling you to do good things. And that's really an outgrowth of what the Bible seems to teach about the influence of evil and good in our lives. Not that there's an angel on our shoulder like that, but that there's this influence, this good against the evil, the flesh against the spirit. And so Paul made it quite clear in his epistles about this, warning people that if you walk after the flesh, you will of the flesh reap corruption. But if you sow after the spirit, you will of the spirit reap life. And so our adversary, the devil, 
One picture given to us is that he is the liar and he's the father of all lies. And the first work he did in the created order of things was to dismantle all of, of mankind's aspirations. He lied to Adam and Eve. And when they fell for the lie and went after these sinful things, then man lost his habitation, he lost his dwelling place, his home, his family, his standing with God and all of that because death entered the world and death by sin. And that was all by this one man who believed Satan's lie. And so when, when Satan messed with Eve's thinking, he even quoted Scripture. And yet he turned it around with his lie and he said, You shall not surely die. And we know the rest of that story. So we know about temptation, and we know the source of it is Satan, who is the father of all lies, and anybody associated with that then. So we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, Paul said. We wrestle against principalities and powers and all, but we do wrestle against our own flesh and blood. We do have a problem from within, our own ability to choose to do what's wrong. The Bible says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is, is tempted. Now notice, everyone, each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives, for, it gives birth to sin. And when, it is, when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So notice there, there is temptation. We are all subject to it. We can't say God's doing it to us. And when we are tempted, it's because we're led away by our own lust. And then we fall for that. We go down the wrong road. So when he's led away by his own lust. So Paul would warn the churches of Galatia, don't let your freedom be used as an opportunity to sin or an occasion for the flesh. So think about this. Now some versions use the term sinful nature and some denominational belief systems build a, a false theology on this phrase sinful nature. And... Uh, set up such a case that man can, cannot find the way of salvation without the Holy Spirit cracking the code for him and doing some miraculous work on his heart. But the idea, though, is still there in the Scriptures that there has to be something within man that sin can appeal to or the temptation wouldn't have worked to start with. And so that bridgehead, that enemy on the inside that can open the gate and let evil come in is our, is our flesh. Sarx in the, in the Greek text it's the idea that the flesh against the spirit, the, the uh, material against the spiritual and, and all of that. And so we can make the choice. And we do live in two worlds, as we mentioned last Sunday night. We, we are here stuck in a material world, as it were, and yet our citizenship is in heaven. We belong to the Father, and we constantly wrestle over spiritual values, and our moral values come from a spiritual source, which is God. And yet the needs of the body, things needful for the body, uh, Maslow's hierarchy of need. You need food and shelter and sex and love and relationship and fulfillment and all these things that we need to, to fulfill our lives and, and keep us alive. And yet way beyond that, we need the spiritual side fulfilled. And we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so here uh, Paul says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So he's saying here, this is where the battleground is. Jesus said, out of the heart proceed the issues of life. It's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes forth out of a man. For out of the heart proceed adulteries and lies and all these things. It all comes back to the human heart. 
And so we do have a war on our hands, a spiritual war, and it goes on and on. And there's always this constant tension between right and wrong and good and evil. And so the master plan given by Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 through 19, you can see this unfolding as Paul describes, verse 17, This I say therefore and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind. Now these are the outsiders, the unconverted, the unbelievers, the people of this world, just regular people without Christ, and yet they're walking in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you've not learned Christ in this way. And so now notice the plan. Satan has an ability to darken our understanding. And this can happen to anybody. People who have not been shown something just have no way of knowing it. I saw a cute thing the other day on the Internet. Somebody was poking fun at teenagers today that don't know something like this old folks know. And they had them trying to operate a hand crank can opener. Well, it was kind of funny in a way, but I thought, well, nobody knows something they've not been shown. And our religious friends and neighbors, some people have a conscience superior to anyone's or just equal to anyone's and are doing the very best they know how to do and are doing it in good conscience but are doing it in error, kind of like Saul did. And they are, they are practicing and believing what they've been told and what they've been shown. And so that doesn't make them right and doesn't make us agree with them. It's just that we, are, we do what we've been shown we have a faith tradition handed to us and this is how you do church and this is how you do prayer and this is how you do and so we do what we've been taught. And so a teenager that's not seen a dial phone won't know what to do with it. It looks silly watching them try to figure it out or a hand crank can opener. But if you show them what it is, okay, they, they got it. They can get it. And so Satan has a way of darkening your understanding Someone says, this is the way to go. This is the way life is. This is how you handle marital problems. This is how you handle money. This is, and you're shown. So Satan has the ability to darken the understanding. And then there's the hardening of the heart. And then once our hearts are hardened, porosis in the Greek, the callousing over, the, the loss of sensitivity then follows to where we become immersed in the ways of the world. And we're insensitive to sin. Our conscience has been seared or, or, worn down, worn out, broken somehow. And then after being immersed in sensuality, finally comes spiritual destruction. And this seems to be a pattern. And you'll notice sometimes, or I guess all time, if you notice, when somebody goes off the deep end, as we say, they don't usually start right there. They don't just walk out one day and say, okay, today, right now, I'm going to do this act that's going to ruin my life forever, my spiritual life or my marriage or whatever. Instead, they're like, well, I could watch it or I could laugh about it or I could look at it or I could study it. And pretty soon, you're getting lulled into this loss of sensitivity. And then pretty soon, you think you're in control of this. I can quit any time I want. And just like any other addiction, whatever it is, you get immersed in this business you're involved in until you're overwhelmed. In fact, uh, Peter has a way of talking about that. We'll sit in a minute. So Satan is real. He's a liar. He's the father of all lies. But what is it, what is it that he does? In the case of Job... Satan slandered God's goodness, and he's, he's talking about this, and he says, you know, Job is only following you. Job is only righteous and, and, and loving you because you built a hedge around him. You take that, that hedge and let him have some problems, and we'll see whose side he's on. So God gives Satan permission to try Job. Just don't kill him. 
And so, you know, everything broke loose in his life. And that's a sad, to me, a sad chapter to read, the first few chapters of Job, when we read about what a good man he was and how he prayed and how he loved his family and took care of them, had them over for dinner, and all these things that you do that's right. And then everything falls apart. What a test. And sure enough, as we read the whole sad story and the, the challenges there, Job never did break down and give up and curse God or blame God. He was giving God the praise even though he was losing everything around him that was dear to him. And we think about that, you know, when you've stood behind, beside the rubble of an aching, broken heart, when everything you've given your life to falls apart. That's when your faith is really tested. So Job was tested by Satan, but God gave him permission to do it. In the same way with Jesus, when Satan came to him face to face, he tempted him, he quoted scripture to him, tried to throw him off track, and all of that. And in the case of the tares, in Matthew 13, an enemy came in while men slept and sowed tares in the field. That's, that's something that he does as he interferes with the harvest. He interferes any way he can. And in Mark chapter 4 and verse 15, uh, he takes away the word. Luke 8 has the same storyline that he takes away the word. And I believe that's one of the most powerful weapons he uses or most obvious ones, in my opinion, today. If what, if what ruins a person is to not have the living word of God, then he doesn't have to come and trip you up and cause you to go off and do some heinous, terrible, awful sin right off the bat. All he has to do is spiritually starve you by keeping you doing something else so that you can't get into the Word. How easy is that? Or should I say, how hard is it to hold still and read the Bible? That's like a, that's like a conscious act of the will to get into the Word and stay there. In the case of Judas, uh, the, the, the devil or Satan put it into his heart to betray Jesus. And the same way with Peter, he was sifted by the devil, Luke 22. And Paul, we understand from what he wrote, that Satan interfered with his entire ministry, it seems. And there was this thorn in his flesh, among other things, all the persecution, all the sufferings of Paul that Satan was behind. And Satan's activities today, just like in Acts 5 with Ananias and Sapphira, the question was, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? So who's, what was that about? Satan filled their heart? Well, it was their choice, and they made it what they decided to do, but Satan was behind that. And in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 5, the warning that lest Satan tempt us, and marital relationships there and fulfilling our needs and all. And then in 2 Corinthians 2, the warning, lest Satan take an advantage of us. And again, his servants appear as righteous. And what's one of the first things a liar will tell you? If you're dealing with a liar, is, I'm not lying. You know, what's the first, one of the first things a monster will say? Well, I'm not a monster. You can trust me. I mean, it's in the Disney movies. It's everywhere. That's the way it works. That's how, how heinous it is to deal with the father of lies. And then he blinds the minds of, of uh, God's people when he can. He has deceitful doctrines of demons. That is, he deceives us even with partial truth. He's so tricky. Second uh, Timothy 2 and verse 26, he can hold us captive the phrase is to do his will, if we allow it. And so, as we read, he walks about seeking whom he may devour. But it's all with permission. You'll notice that God is always sovereign. He's always in charge. And even though he doesn't cause every sin to happen or cause every evil act to happen or every temptation to happen, he's still sovereign and it happens with his permission, we might say. So, in Matthew 8, when the, the de demoniac was cleansed and those legion of demons were there, they said, suffer us to go into the swine. Well, why didn't they just go get in the swine and do whatever they wanted to do? Because 
God is sovereign, and they had to have permission from Jesus. So even Satan had to have permission to, to deal with Job. Um, in Job 1 and verse 12. And then Satan, we're told, filled Peter or sifted him only after Jesus allowed him to do that. And the Satan and his angels are limited. They're bound in chains of darkness, eventually forever into the abyss. And only when men slept was the enemy able to go in and sow tares. And so when we're alert and vigilant and diligent, and we can't, we'll see this as we develop this, you, one of the safety features built in, if we think about the influence of, of evil in our lives, one Bible principle is no man can serve two masters. And if we are serving Jesus, Satan can't be our master. It's only when we choose to let him and to serve him that he can have mastery over us. And so he can snatch away the word only if our heart is hardened. If our heart is good and honest and the word comes in, then it's okay. It's when our heart is hardened like a rock and a hard surface that the seed can't go in and Satan then takes away the word, the word that could save us and help us and, and free us. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, Peter again talking about this process. I wish it was in a different order because we are enticed and then we are uh, enslaved. And well, let me go ahead and just read it how it's put here. This is a New American Standard Version. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, talking about false teachers, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. And again, verse 20, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world... By the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. So there's this process, this natural increasing and the temptation comes on. We're enticed. And we're enticed. Then we sort of take the bait and we become entangled. And then when we get entangled, then we're trapped. One of my favorite old cartoons in the Game and Fish Commission, not the magazine uh, Field and Stream or something, that's what it was back in the 67 or 8. It was a cartoon. had this fish in the water, two fish in the water, but one of them was on a stringer that was hanging over the side of a boat. The other fish wasn't on there, and, and the fish that was free said, I told you it was a plastic worm, but no, you said, it's real, it's real. And I thought today I was listening to uh, NPR radio uh, broadcast about policemen using tasers and at close range how they don't work and how the guy can actually be made more of a monster of whatever is happening to him and he gets on them because of the voltage and all this difference uh, and stuff. And I've thought about, you know, one of the ways, one of the most effective weapons that has ever been other than nuclear war and all the big bombs we got now when you're doing hand-to-hand -hand combat is the, is the net. And in the, in the robotics, uh, battle bots, one of the laws and rules of, of the game is you can't use anything in your weaponry that has a net because it just shuts down everything. It messes up everything. And I thought, what about what if the cops thought of that? What if the police, the police forces thought we'll have a net as part of our... If a guy's got knives and he's coming at us and we tase him and he's still coming at us, we'll throw a net on him. He can't do much of anything to you if he's tangled up in a net. And that's the very way Satan works on this, is this enticement, this bridgehead in the, in the flesh that we go after it, we're curious, and then we get entangled in it, and then we can't, can't get loose. We're overcome by it. So Satan is our adversary. He's the accuser of the brethren. <clears throat> 
He's the one that watches us, and when, and when we fall for his wiles and his trickery, then he's the very one to accuse us before the Father. He accused, look what they did, and he's the one that caused it. So how do, we, how do we avoid the problem with the devil, with Satan, the father of all lies? Is to walk after the Spirit and make no provision for the flesh. It's not easy, but that's part of the solution, is to walk after the Spirit and not after the flesh. We feed the Spirit and we starve the flesh, as it were, and we seek wisdom from above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. For the wisdom of the world is earthly and sensual and demonic. But the wisdom from, from God is the, is the wisdom that shows us the light of how to walk and please Him. And we resist Him through prayer. One of the most powerful weapons we have, other than the Word of God itself, the sword of the Spirit, is the prayer to invoke the blessings of the Father and to, and to have His help in, in all that we do. And so through the Word and, and the armor of the Christian, we avoid the wiles of Satan, we're able to extinguish his fiery darts. So we'll see later on in the following lessons about demons, what they are, what they were, what they used to do, or what they might do, and, and what the Bible says about all that. In Isaiah 55 and verse 7, in this call to righteousness and to forsake wickedness, notice the phraseology, let the wicked man forsake his way, lifestyle, mannerisms, and the unrighteous man, wicked man, his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy and abundantly pardon. Notice how this is all going back to that fountain, that source, the human heart. And just like when the prodigal son made all of his mistakes and then he came to himself, his thoughts turned around and he realized the situation he was in. Then he began to think something else. The thoughts he used to have, I want what's coming to me and I want it now and I'm heading out of here and I'm you know, right as living and all the things that he did wrong. And when he comes to himself there in the pig pen... And no man given, giving him anything. See, that's amazing how money fits into so much of Scripture. Two-thirds of the parables are about money. But here's a guy desperate and nobody would give him anything. And so then he starts thinking again. He says, how many of my father's hired servants have bread and to spare? And he begins to think about home and father and, and right living. And he says... I will arise and I will go to my father and I will say to him, I'm not worthy to be called your son. And this is his thought process. And that's what this is all about is the human heart. So when Christ comes into the world, he shows us the way to the father. And the living word of God touches us in our hearts. And when we are pricked in our hearts, then we respond to what God's word has said to us. And it helps us to turn our thoughts around, turn our life around, turn our steps around and to walk in the narrow way rather than the broad way that leads to destruction. We're going to stand and sing a song of spiritual import. It helps us to think about our own condition before the Father, and it may be that something is amiss in your life. Maybe evil has gotten a foothold and is too strong, and you need help with prayer from prayer warriors or your fellow saints here to pray and help you for strength, spiritual strength and godliness. Or it may be that you've not yet put on Christ in baptism. If that's the case and you want to do it tonight, all things are ready. You can forsake your wickedness, forsake your thoughts, and change your life and change your destiny, your eternal destiny, if you want to confess your faith in Christ and be baptized into Him, washed in His blood. So if you need to come to the Father, if you'll come now while we stand and while we sing, let me know.